Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Hello, everybody. David Gura, Tom Keith, thrilled you're with us. On a Friday, we're going to give you lots of smaller interviews today. Richard Greenfield with BTIG here on Time Warner, AT&T, and the rest of media. Rich Greenfield, what's the level of sweat in your industry? You see the Wall Street Journal doing a huge restructuring. You see other people rationalizing. I mean, the whole media, the whole content business is in chaos right now, isn't it? Well, Tom, you look at the music industry, you know, which went through a major, major um, disruption, really started in the year 2000, and music's just beginning to get better now. This will probably be the first year where you see growth uh, of a much lower level. My point being that, you know, it took, what, 16, 17 years for the industry to recover from digital disruption. I think the video industry, you know, TV, that whole business, is at the very early stages right, of disruption right. from the Internet. What does Mr. Bucus have at Time Warner that everybody seems to want? Well, I think you have, you know, the, the reality is it's all about content, right? Great content. And I think there's lots of distribution platforms and technology platforms that probably look at that high-quality content and go, if we could marry the two together, you could create something special. Uh, and, you know, when you think about content, not only do you have Warner Brothers, but HBO really creates its own content. HBO doesn't really buy content from other people. They create, you know, when they create Game of Thrones, that's an HBO production. And so you're really looking at, you know, obviously you've got Turner, uh, which is, um, you know, a kind of a programming business. But in terms of HBO and Warner Brothers, you have two of the world's most successful content assets available. If I'm going to buy a, a pie, if Time Warner is the pie, is the whole thing Looking tasty to me, or is it HBO? Is it these these component parts of Time Warner that are things that uh, a company like, uh, uh, you know, that AT&T would be interested in? Uh, I think you have to believe that they'd be focused on HBO and Warner Brothers and a whole lot less interested in Turner. That being said, you know, you think about, um, when you think about AT&T, obviously that's a mobile business or the primary part of their business is mobile. You think about what has Time Warner done well in mobile, you would say CNN. I mean, CNN's done a very good job uh, executing in mobile, uh, far better than Fox News has. And so, you know, look, I think overall Turner probably is not nearly as interesting to whether we're talking AT&T or Apple or Google, we, we could go through a long list of potential other buyers. The reality is the, the crown jewels we've always believed are HBO and Warner Brothers. What's been the, uh, the, the outcome of that uh, acquisition of DirecTV? By, by, by all counts, a success. What have the challenges been of that, of that deal, and how could that influence this one? I think they became the largest paid TV company, so there's more subscribers. They have more video subscribers than even Comcast, so they are the industry leader in the video business uh, through that acquisition. 
assets, not to mention uh, from a cash standpoint, it generate, generated a lot of cash to pay uh, the dividend that's so important to AT&T investors. Do you buy into the argument that we're getting to a point of saturation when it comes to content that uh, every, everyone is trying so desperately to create it there might be too much of it? You know, Bob Iger spoke a few weeks ago, and he was up at the BC CEO Club, and he probably gave what I think is the most important comment of the year, maybe even of the decade, where he said, look, we have Pixar, we have Disney, we have Marvel. But in this age, um, without having a direct relationship with the consumer and data on what consumers are doing, great content may no longer be enough. And so I think when you put it through that lens of great content needs to be married with distribution, uh, I think when you think about Time Warner, it really makes you think that there's lots of possible potential buyers over the course of the next Um, couple of years. Rich, before I let you go, what's your single best buy right now? Uh, we have two favorite ideas on the long side uh, would be Netflix and Viacom. We think Viacom, CBS are going to merge, and we think Netflix is the future of how people watch television. And our favorite short idea right now uh, is Disney, which we've been focused on yeah. uh, as a short since last year. Then we'll let you go to Disney World with your family. I understand that. <laughs> with Netflix, very quickly here, Rich Greenfield, Netflix, there's some worry about the cash flow. Those worries go away. What do they invest less, and so there'll be better cash flow? You know, doing something someone's never done before is never easy for Wall Street to get their arms around. No one's ever tried to build out a global platform for content creation and distribution. It takes a lot of money. Uh, there's no doubt they are forward investing, something that legacy media companies, as you yeah. know, Tom, are not really good at. Uh, they're all about hitting numbers and making sure they get to their earnings estimates so the executives get paid tens of millions of dollars. They're not about investing okay. and building businesses and going into, you know, well, basically losing lots of money on the free cash flow okay. in order to build Rich, the future. got to go. Rich Greenfield, thank you so much. learned yesterday from Bloomberg News. Senior executives at AT AT&T and Time Warner have met in recent weeks to discuss various business strategies, including a possible merger, according to people who are familiar with the matter. Those talks uh, are preliminary, very preliminary at this point. I want to bring in Brian Weezer. He is senior analyst overseeing advertising media and internet for Pivotal. He joins us now. Appreciate having you here, Uh, Brian. Help us understand the complementarity here uh, and give us your sense of how likely it is we could see a deal on this front. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, the complementarity is uh, it, it, it's not as clear as, uh, say, the Fox uh, attempted acquisition previously or, or some of the other um, um, M&A ideas that have been floated. Uh, it, it's not unlike Comcast owning NBC Universal and owning its uh, a distribution platform, but the, it's really a, a bit more of a stretch than that. It's covering a lot of telecom assets. So you could argue there's some complementarity in that uh, in the future more content gets delivered through mobile devices. Um, and so there's something there. But the reality is these are very different businesses. And uh, you could argue that from an AT&T perspective, uh, which I don't cover, I should clarify, but from a, mm. let's say, more generically, a telco perspective, it's a hedge uh, uh, to have a position both in the uh, infrastructure uh, of content delivery as well as in uh, content packaging. Broadly speaking, how important is it to have a hedge like that today? It depends who you are. If you're the management of a company that wants to make sure that your enterprise is more likely to be around and growing 
in 5, 10, and 20 years, it's relatively important. Mm. If you're an investor, you might prefer to hedge yourself. You mentioned that um, that that Century Fox overture, the one that was 21st Century Fox overture that was rejected by by Time Warner. That was, I mean, a big offer, 75 billion uh, or so. What what went wrong with that deal? Well, you know, I, it sounds like it wasn't enough, um, and and so that does speak to uh, the idea that um, certainly an offer would need to be pretty robust if uh, if there were to be one um, uh, from an AT and T. No, I think Time Warner is certainly a willing seller. I don't think anyone's uh, surprised by that. Uh, the question will be whether or not there's math that can make it work. Um, you know, as I said, there, there's not uh, there, there are far more synergies between a Fox uh, Time Warner acquisition. So many more costs to be driven out, yeah, and, and revenue yeah. synergies too. I mean, the overlays are very different. Brian Weiser, in your study of media, what is the cultural success of distribution people mating with media content people? Do they take lunch yeah. well? Do they take lunch well <laughs> together? They have to really keep themselves pretty separate. I mean, and, and I think you know, Comcast has, I think, uh, which also I don't cover. My colleague does, but Comcast, I think, has succeeded in, in, in almost in spite of those uh, um, challenges. Uh, you know, you could certainly argue that. Um, I mean, it's very clear that the, 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 on the NBCU side, on the Comcast side, I mean, there's a real separation in terms of how they operate. Um, so, uh, so to be clear, that's the model. Comcast is the model of what everybody's trying to do. Is that the right statement? Not everybody, not everybody, but I think there's certainly, I mean, uh, to clarify, there's far more in common between the legacy Comcast or cable uh, uh, company and uh, um, NBC Universal, a content packaging company, in the same way that DirecTV and Time Warner have far more in common than the legacy AT&T does with the rest of those two enterprises. And so it's culturally somewhat easier, I would think, um, because there is so much common interaction and common understanding But uh, between those two entities. So even though they're culturally different and you can kind of move people between them, they still have to operate uh, uh, very separately. Um, but when you bring in the much bigger telco business, um, where it Culturally, no, these these entities don't typically live in the same space at all. I mean, just go back to, you know, the, the legacy AT&T broadband uh, effort, which ironically begat what is Comcast now um, when they bought TCI. Um, you know, I don't think they they owned it long enough to really create a, a attempt to create a, a any cultural cohesion. But I think that it's 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 uh, these are such vast vast companies, and, and frankly, being based in Texas doesn't help. Hmm. Um, you know, Philadelphia is not far away from New York. It's on the so train line, right. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you just a, a technical question here. You look at what Comcast is doing. They've had the triple play. Now they're talking about a quadruple play. They're, they're putting more faith in um, moving to wireless, uh, having a wireless network. Uh, when you look at, at where these other companies are, are going, is, is that it? And how long is it going to take to get there to, to, to bring in that wireless component? Well, you know, I mean, content is delivered to all sorts of devices now. The va when we're talking about video-based content, um, the vast majority of it is still delivered to a traditional TV set. It's something like 80%. Um, and sure, that diminishes as time progresses. But it's, um, it's hard to imagine, you know, this, the dream of, you know, 10 and 15 years ago, which I, I fear that... Uh, 
some of the telcos may still be rooted in that you're just going to watch your content on your handset, you know, while you're commuting, and and that's how everyone's going to consume TV going forward is is ridiculous. I mean, the vast majority of TV consumption well, will continue to happen in the home, and that can mean it comes across. A range of devices, yeah. which could be connected to Wi-Fi, could be connected through a broadband connection in, that's you know an Ethernet cable or, or a conventional right. TV set. Brian, you've been a great defender of the success of traditional TV. Um, with all the tumult in the United Kingdom and the U.S. over this shift to digital, what's the truism you would emphasize? Everybody's restructuring. The Wall Street Journal happens to be the latest in the New York Times, I believe the Daily Mail, I can't remember, the Independent. The newspapers are all caving in, et cetera. What's the message for our listeners you would give on the great shift to digital? It's evolutionary. That's the main point. There, there, there are gradual changes, and they're rarely as rapid as um, – uh, it might be believed if one only believed the press releases put out by the companies that have an interest in propagating that future vision. We saw uh, the Times name a new deputy publisher this week, A.G. Seltzberger, uh, waiting in the wings now. He, of course, was a, uh, as a very young man, the author of a digital strategy report for the New York Times. Tom brings up the Times. When you look at the state of newspapers, uh, let's say, in this country today, you optimistic? Uh, you know, we, we have here the infusion of some young blood in, in the Times' executive ranks. Are you confident the Times is going to be uh, around and healthy here in 5, 10, 15 years? Optimism is all relative, um, <laughs> uh, which is to say if, 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 uh, if you're declining by negative 10 percent year over year, um, going to a negative 7 or 8 sounds pretty good. Um, and, and so when I think of the newspaper industry in general, uh, I, there's not a lot of reason to be very optimistic. Um, I think that uh, there is some sort of – what's the reverse of a plateau? Or I guess it's still a plateau. It's just on the – Canyon, downside. I guess. Right, called, yeah. Excuse me. That's called yeah, the valley, a valley. It's your checkbook. Yeah, there's a valley that eventually I think some of the premium uh, and really differentiated titles can eventually get to. Um and so you think of the Times, the, the Wall Street Journal and, and the FT are probably relatively protected, um, primarily because they're, and, and I would argue Bloomberg Media as well, um, from a from a um, outside the terminal business, but from a just because the consumer base is, is just very different and, and who's paying for the content is different. Um, but when you start to look at a more general interest content, so it's New York Times, Washington Post, um, those guys that are really differentiated and are investing heavily in, yeah. in their journalism are going to have a business in the future. It may not be as lucrative as it once was, but they'll be around. Yeah. The risk is that you know uh, titles that are uh, featuring relatively commoditized content, um, or which are not investing heavily in, in, in their own journalism, or don't have a big market, um, are not likely to you know well, it, be around for very long. Brian, thank you so much, Brian Weiser, Pivotal Research on uh, the negotiations, the discussion. Uh, our, our news, our Alex Sherman and the team. Uh, it's not like a merger discussion. Might be just lunch it's at this point. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. he's picking up the check, but yeah. Right. Early, the, early days here. The, the culture, the culture wars, if yes. you will, the culture battles of media, uh, as well on AT and T and Time Warner, and of course they are a little bit on uh, other sporting areas of media. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors, 
have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Um, it is an honor to have Nick Heyman with us today, uh, who has followed Generous Electric for more than a few years. Nick, I was thunderstruck at the organic sale, 0 to 2%, to see a zero figure come across the Bloomberg to me as something. Is that a big deal, to use the word well, flat? Well, I was surprised, too, yeah, you know, yeah. because we had this big skew uh, lined up for the fourth quarter. And year-to-date, the organic uh, sales uh, on the industrial uh, are flat. So, you know, you're looking basically at flat to, uh, you know, presumably uh, up some in the fourth quarter. We've been thinking the fourth quarter is going to be up 5 to 6%, so we've got to see what they're going to yeah. say today. But bringing that down, they they mentioned that they'd be moving towards the lower end of that 2 to 4, you know, after the second yeah. quarter. So something slipped. Well, you know, are, they, the, are, are they, even if they're this ginormous as they are, at the end of the quarter, the end of the month, they got to bring in the orders, right? Well, the orders were actually pretty decent, right? They were, you know, I mean, less adverse. I guess I'd call it organically down six instead of 16 in the prior quarter. Overall, um, they were up 16, and the industrial was up 24. So, you know, you're starting to get a little traction, certainly on the order side, and your backlog organically year over year is uh, – over the last 12 months is up 6%. But, um, you know, one of the things they're trying to do here, Tom, is they're trying to take and develop this market for project finance with the new GE Capital. And what that allows is, in essence, um, if you want to call it the global junk bond for base infrastructure, it allows, um, you know, non-developed and emerging countries to be able to afford now. They've always had need, but to be able to afford, um, you know, power and yeah. obviously transportation. And this is this is a big new market across the world for institutional investors. And GE and Siemens and Mitsubishi and others are at the forefront of developing it. And it helps reduce then GE's reliance on global GDP, which we all know is, is very tepid, uh, particularly in the industrial uh, sector of the global economy. And uh, that's really the key breakaway to get that developed. Nick, now that GE Capital is no longer a SIFI, the Treasury Department did away with that designation here a couple of months ago. What's what's changed in terms of its strategy, in terms of how it's uh, approaching its line of business? Yeah, we're going to have a dinner, actually, with the new GE Capital senior management here in New York in uh, early December. And what the idea is, is to help bring now um, investors' awareness to project finance. So when I started at Drexel, Milken had figured out the junk bond market was really a lot less you know, cr- cr- you know, embedded risk than the rating agencies. Here, you have project finance, and the idea of investing in a hydroelectric project in Chad sounds pretty scary. Actually, that's a huge new market, which we think will be a 15 to $20 trillion in financing um, opportunity through 2040. So they're going to come in and explain how – by being able to not lend on their balance sheet, but coordinate from sovereign wealth funds, from insurance companies and institutional investors, and have strong oversight and transparency yeah. 
this is going to be a big deal. When, when, you, when, you, when you listen, Nick Heyman, to uh, President Trump or President Clinton talk about we're going to build infrastructure, take that to a global basis. Is that GE? Are they the ones that are going to benefit from all the talk about quote-unquote infrastructure? That's a great question because we just had one of our longtime associates who is one of the leads, Norm Anderson at CGLA Infrastructure, leads at understanding where infrastructure stands on all continents around the world. And um, he told us, Tom, that the biggest fallacy right now is we're going to move from monetary to physical stimulus with big public works infrastructures. And the reason, he said, is there's no shovel-ready um, studies that have been put in place yeah. so that you can immediately launch, you yeah. know, and direct the capital. This is the same thing that happened should when we, Obama did this. John, should we tell Nick Heyman about 58th Street in Manhattan <laughs> as being shovel-ready? Oh, shovel-ready. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, the good news is, I just, this is true, the, the Port Authority is going to finally fix the portal drawbridge. Oh, good. I feel good. <laughs> so, good. I don't know if GE has There's also the it. drawbridge by Bloomingdale's in the middle of Manhattan to get across the road. <laughs> David, save us here. Nick, let me ask you about about uh, about GE as an IT company, we've heard Jeffy Meltz say this over and over again. We've all seen seen the ads touting this. We've seen this transition begun in in, in earnest. We had misses today by Power and Aviation, a beat by Healthcare. Is that just a sign that this transition is proceeding apace? That uh, that we have a company here that is more focused on computers and and technology. Yeah, no, they're moving along on this very well. They got 219 Predix Alliance partners. They originally thought they'd have 50 and then 70 this year. They had 37 back at the end of June. So that's really growing. They got 16,000 independent software developers writing apps for Predix. That's up from 10,000 in late June and none at the start of this year. They're on track for 20 by the end of this year. They've achieved half a billion dollars of internal productivity from uh, GE Digital's uh, productivity enhancement. Um, and, and in turn, they're going to yeah. exceed their target of five for the year. So, yeah, they're, this is a business that's going to do $6.5 billion of external revenues this year, mm-hmm. next year $10 billion, and um, be right. a very, very significant well, contributor. Nick, we know you've got another meeting to go to. We're going to let you go here and get on with your uh, day. Nick Amen, uh to help us uh, so much uh, on uh, General Selectric. Day, uh, uh, David Gura, it is Absolutely remarkable, and I say this after seeing John Rice at one of our Bloomberg events, their vice chairman, um, with Keith Sharon. It is remarkable to look at the Bloomberg, and folks, the screen is GE Equity DES. It's a famous core original screen of the Bloomberg. GE Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, I've I heard Karen Moscow that. say that a few minutes ago, and you, you, yeah. you still still do a double take when you hear it. But the company moving yeah. its headquarters there, big uh, Jeff Immelt initiative, and, and certainly yeah. encouraged by uh, yeah. the, the current mayor of Boston. Uh, and uh, it was a hard-fought fight, but we see the company yeah. moving there. I'm going to do a TV shoot down Lexington Avenue today. Shovel-ready shoot? Sh- no, a TV <laughs> shoot. i got to get there. I'm taking the surveillance to Korsky. Of course. Uh, with the old GE building, John Tucker. The old GE building. It's a gorgeous building. It's like you walk in and it's like a movie set. What is it's it It's like now? Art Deco. What, uh, I think it's there's a for lease sign. You know. I saw some for lease signs there on the it's, ground level if you, if you need an yeah. office, John. So if you need an autograph also, <laughs> uh, show up today and look for Tom. Yeah. It's, Just it's don't get old, too close. Old GE building. Yeah, please. <laughs> with, the, with the plate.
doing a little bit of Bloomberg mathematics here <laughs> on the, I'm trying to get for you folks how miserable the mystery stock is. The mystery stock, would you like to make 14.46% per year for the last 10 years? Would you like to make 14.46% per year? The stock is in a crushing bear market of, uh, David, you're, you're not going to believe these numbers. There, there we go. There we go. The, the, the numbers, it's a terrible bear market of 11%. Sarah Senator on McDonald's, as she go. does to help us out here with Sanford uh, Bursting. Sarah, how grim are things for McDonald's if over the last 10 years they've made 14.5%? Um, well, I think, you know, the where that um, performance has been concentrated might tell a slightly different story, right? So, uh, you know, we you had a, a really good run from 2003 to 2011, and then yep. a bit of a trickier time. Um, up until this past year, which has gotten better, but maybe not uh, yeah. not as be much better as people had hoped. Within this, and if I say to you, is McDonald a blue chip stock, that has to do with revenue persistency and then down the income statement, the persistency to deliver cash flow. Is it the same as it used to be? Um. So I, I think the answer is no, um, both for both good and bad. It is not the same as it was, uh, you know, in the last two or three years where you had negative um, revisions on the top line. Um, EPS were actually declining, but nor is it as good as it was in sort of the halcyon days of, of that I mentioned where you know, every year those numbers were growing. So I think what we're seeing is sort of stable. You know, it's a it's a good, solid company um, which should be able to grow with its industry, um, but maybe not a whole lot faster. Help me understand the, the staying power of the McGriddle. We have this new new push for See, all day. I I, I'm sorry, sir. I, I can't get this. These are like CFA level questions. You don't have to, no, no apologies necessary. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. I am personally a fan, and clearly uh, I'm not alone. There you go. I wonder if you're a fan of, of of having the griddle though for dinner. We have this new impulse for 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 all day breakfast. Is that something that's little more than than a trend? Do you think it's going to last? Are people going to continue doing this, or or is this going to wear off here uh, in the next couple? quarters well you know i mean i was just reading about the breakfastarian movement so there's there's some staying power to this right there are people who want to eat breakfast all day long and frankly that's what we've seen over time is just um you know the way people eat when they eat what they eat has become much more fluid you know the idea mm -hmm. of like three meals a day has, has disappeared um i would say for mcdonald's purposes um it's certainly been uh, incremental. There are certainly people who are who are going to McDonald's uh, who would not have otherwise right. gone if they couldn't get their McGriddle or their biscuit sandwich or whatever, you know, hash browns at, at four o'clock in the afternoon or you know. And right. so I think we're seeing that, but it's 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 it seems pretty small. Well, we are fact-based journalism, and we need to fact-check this, David. I'd be pleased to let you know <laughs> that one of these puppies yeah. creates 448 calories, 35 percent of your saturated fat. <laughs> Diet, eighty-one percent of your cholesterol diet, and it weighs in with uh, uh, sodium of forty-six percent. It admits to having some protein. There you go, powering me through the day. I have one stuffed between the seats of my car. It's now petrified. <laughs> Sarah, on, on that note, on that note, we've had Steve Easterbrook talking more about moving McDonald's toward healthier fare. 
is it going to happen? Look, you know, I think you have to you have to give some credence to that, right? Over time, you know, we do think people care a little bit more about healthy eating, I will say. The definition of what healthy is has nothing to do with any of the metrics that you just mentioned, you know, calories, sodium, any of that. Thank goodness, it's right. About, it's about <laughs> clean ingredients. Yes. Um, it's about knowing, you know, that the, the, the chicken is antibiotic-free or the eggs are cage-free. You know, the yes. dairy is hormone-free. It's, it's about, you know, people care a lot about products. They don't care quite so much about the fact that, you know, you get a third of a day's calories in a sandwich, right? So so I think that's that's the, the tack that he's taking, um, all of these initiatives around supply chain. You know, we know, you know, we know it doesn't matter how much you market salads, they're never going to be more than 2% of sales mix. They just aren't. People just don't eat salads like that. So um, it's really much more about uh, the supply chain and talking to, to those, um, you know, th- yeah. th- those characteristics. Let's move from the dietary metrics to the financial ones he has proposed here, refranchising a bunch of, of restaurants and, and, and cutting costs. Uh, does that show promise to you, restructuring the, the way this company uh, is right now? Yeah, I, I think it's it's the it's 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 a necessary um, change in strategy. Again, you know, if you look back over the last couple of years, prior to this year, um, you know, really prior to the ta- to the the, the, la- the latter part of 2015, um, you had three years of of pretty um, you know pretty uh, anemic growth or even declines. Um, and I think, you know, what, what that told us is this is a pretty mature business. It is probably best run in the hands of franchisees, um, with McDonald's focusing on being less capital intensive, more on those cash flow metrics, more on your very consistent performance, yeah. which is something that's easier to attain when you're not actually operating a lot of restaurants. Uh, very quickly, sir, before I let you go, an update on the train wreck of the decade, Chipotle. Mm. Have they turned it around? Um, they're, you know, they're try- <laughs> trying very hard to claw their way out of that hole that, that E. coli put them in. Um, it's, it's, it's happening, but it's happening more slowly than I yeah. think, you know, most people, including management would have liked. Yeah. I rarely say negative things about companies. It's just not my style, folks. David Gurr and Sarah, I was in a Chipotle the other day. I was stunned at how unclean it was. I, I was thunderstruck, and it, it was. I, there's never been a McDonald's in my life, even approaching what I observed. Is that right? Just stunned, Sarah. Thank you so much. Never on enough, Sarah Senator, uh, with her incredibly important report on the McDonald's. Well, David, Mc- there goes the Chipotle uh, sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, so that's so gone. Mc, McGriddle. If you'd like to learn McGriddle. more about. If you'd like I to couldn't tell more, you what's on it, but I, but I remember eating one once. If you'd like to learn more about the McGriddle, I recommend the important Pulitzer Prize yeah. research of Hollis Johnson at Business Insider. This is the headline, David. Yes. I've tested nearly every fast food <laughs> breakfast item, and one sandwich is clearly better than the rest. There you go. The, the venerable the McGriddle, which yeah. I remember from family road trips. It was a treat to stop on I-40 headed west at the it's McDonald's just, outside God. Hillsboro, North Carolina. Absolutely. I, I love how Sarah Senator makes sense of this uh, industry. Sarah Senator, thank you so much with Sanford uh, Bernstein. And McDonald's up nicely today, up three points. Uh, good, good results from McDonald's.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.